Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and meet me in Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 23 through 31 this uh, morning. Uh, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles along with you. We're going to be in it every single week. And uh, if you would like to use one of the black Bibles in front of you, you're more than welcome to. And if you need help finding the passage, it can be found on page 858 if you're using one of those Bibles. Just a reminder for those of you who may have come in uh, in a little bit late, I want to invite you, uh, if you are newer or visiting today, to our welcome lunch. I want you to have lunch with myself and several other staff members. This is something we do every couple of, a couple times a year uh, to help our new people connect. And it's always helpful to see other new people and, and to get familiar with who's new uh, with you. We really would love for you to join us. And you may be sitting here thinking that you didn't RSVP. You can just show up, and I promise that we'll have some kind of food for you, um, even if you didn't RSVP. Worst case scenario, I will give up my meal so that you can have uh, a meal. And if you know how much I love food, you will know how much, how, how much I want you there. And if that didn't convince you, uh, we're having tacos. <laughs> End of discussion. Let's take a look at Acts 4, verses 23 through 31 together. Um, I'll go ahead and read it. You guys can follow along with me as I read. It says this, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, I pray now for clarity in your word. Would you teach us who you are so that we may first praise you and behold your mighty name, Lord, and then come with our requests. I pray, Father, that in, our, in the midst of our trials and, and, and crises, that we would have a fresh and new perspective, a grand perspective of who you are in light of all of our situations. We praise you, Father, and we thank you for your kindness to us. And in your holy name I pray, amen. The integrity of a rope is not determined until it experiences some kind of tension. You don't know how strong a rope really is until it faces that weight of the, of the pull of an object. You can pick up a rope and you can say, well, this seems strong. It seems like it can withstand the pressure of tension, but until you put it to the test, do you know how strong it is? In the same way, the authenticity of one's faith 
is often tested underneath the pressure of crisis. We can all look the part. We can have all these professions of faith and all of these professions of who God is, uh, but we won't know if it's true. We won't know the authenticity of it until we experience some kind of crisis, until the strength of our faith is indeed tested by trouble. Crisis seems to have that effect on people, does it not? For those who aren't truly believers, who may profess faith, but they really have never put their faith in Jesus, they've never really had their eyes open and their heart open to who Jesus is, crisis seems to actually serve as a wedge between them and God. And it's a wedge that separates them uh, from God so much that some people, as a coping mechanism to their crisis, deny God's existence altogether because it's the only logical explanation. However, for the believer, for the one who has truly committed their life to Christ, who has had their eyes opened to, to Christ, crisis actually functions as a magnet that draws us in closer to dependence on God, closer in in our knowledge, a greater understanding of our knowledge of who God is. The, The passage that we just read moments ago truly demonstrates how believers react in a time of crisis when they face the pressure of crisis. And so let's play catch up a little bit. For those of you who have may, may not been around the last month, let me catch you up to the story that we've been walking through in Acts chapter 3 and 4. If you watch any kind of uh, drama television show, you'll know that throughout an episode, the setting will shift from place to place. This passage that we read is the third and final scene of an episode that we've been tracking with the last several weeks. The first scene was that of the temple. Peter and John are walking into the temple for a time of corporate prayer, and they stumble across a uh, handicapped man who has been lame from birth. And through the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus' name, they heal this man. Now, of course, when you go around healing people that have been lame for 40-plus years, you're going to draw a crowd. And this is what happened People started gathering around Peter and John, wondering how on earth did they do this? And so Peter looks as the opportunity and begins preaching. He starts sharing this message of Jesus. He just shared the love of Jesus with this lame man. He had compassion on him. And so he reached out and brought him up. And through Jesus, he was healed. And now he used that to springboard him into sharing the message of Jesus and sharing about the resurrection and how those who are in Christ will be resurrected unto life. This was the first setting. Now, right in the middle of Peter's speech, temple officials seized him and John and detained him uh, for the uproar that they were causing in the temple. They threw him in prison overnight, and that's where the scene or the setting shifts to that of a courtroom, where Peter and John are essentially put on trial 
for their actions in the temple. They uh, are put in front of these Jewish authorities, these Jewish leaders, and uh, they are calling on Peter and John to answer for their heinous crimes, right? The, the authorities, what we found is that they felt threatened by what Peter and John had to say. They felt threatened by Jesus. They felt threatened by the rapid expansion of Christianity and this message. And so they took to intimidation tactics. They strongly warned them not to ever speak in the name of Jesus again. We get the sense that these leaders straight up threatened Peter and John. Basically saying, if you are to go on preaching in this name, there will be serious consequences. We are going to drop the hammer of judgment and punishment on you. In response to this threat, we see that Peter and John refused. And they said, look, punish us all you want. There will not be a day that we do not stop preaching the message of Jesus as long as we are alive. Do whatever you want. We're not going to give up. And now we come to this third and final scene of the episode in verse 23, the response of the believers, if you will, to such a threat. You can imagine the somber walk home for Peter and John as discouragement sets in. Sure, they knocked it out of the park when, it came, uh, when they came face to face with opposition, they, they sat in the midst of a bear's den and they stared down the bear, if you will. But you can imagine, no matter how bold you are or how justified you are in your actions, it never feels good to be threatened. And not only that, but Peter and John now have the task of communicating such a threat to other believers, other disciples, their own people. Peter and John have to go back to their friends and tell them, relay the message to them that not only have they personally been threatened, but the entire community of believers has been threatened and we are now on notice. You can imagine the weight of their circumstance is not light. Perhaps they would be downtrodden and demoralized as they make that slow walk home. But what we find is that they don't walk back to a lonely, empty house, but rather in verse 23, we read that they go to their friends and we find that they experience a bit of respite in their time of crisis as they sit in the company of loved ones. This is the first thing they do is they go to their friends if anything, verse 23 shows us the importance of having a solid group of believers to walk alongside with me in life. This is why it's critical that you plug in and you get involved. And we're okay if you just come in and sit for the service and walk out, but there is so much more for you if you were to connect with other people, because we see the importance of this in this passage. It's critical in times of crisis that we, as a community of believers, have a community of believers that we can retreat to. The very biblical basis of community is designed for moments like this. 
And the problem is that this biblical idea of community seems so foreign to us because we are prone to live such an individual, just an individualistic life. We live, pri- we live private lives in an attempt to find solutions to our problems by ourselves without letting anybody in. It goes against the very fabric of our sin nature to open up our personal lives for others to see. We are unwilling to be vulnerable. And so we lower the standard of fellowship because I'd rather be on an island than to let you in. Experts actually say that this age, we as humans are the most connected, disconnected humans in history, right? Because we have social media that ties us to the world, but those ties are weak in comparison to the ties that bond us over face-to-face interaction, biblical fellowship. When the bottom drops out, Your authentic relationships that have been forged over the years will be the ones that are there. This step of vulnerability is an essential component to receiving care in moments of crisis. So please let somebody in. Because when we share our situation with a group of friends, we unburden ourselves to that. There's a famous idiom that a burden shared is a burden halved or cut in half. It's this picture that in my life, in this time of crisis or in this trouble, I am carrying a backpack full of rocks. And when I share that with you, you might not even have the solution. You might not have the answer, but just loading it off my back, I am taking some of those rocks, maybe not all of them, but some of them, and I am handing them over to you. And we as a community of believers are called to take up the rocks and help carry each other's burden. This is most demonstrated in Christ, right? When he said, come to me, all you who are weary. Are you tired of carrying that backpack all by your own? Give it to me. I'll take your burden. I'll give you rest. He goes on and on about his light uh, yoke, how his burden is easy. He wants you to throw your cares at the foot of the cross. And part of the way of doing this is having a community of believers that can share in this burden. God has put relationships in your life for this purpose. This will help us look at a problem rationally. Because when we carry the burden by ourselves, our limited minds are often overtaken by the depth of emotional influence. It's hard to think straight when we bear the heavy burdens ourselves. And when we aren't thinking straight, we make irrational decisions. Our help, our friends can help us reason and think through the, the, the situation logically because they are not as inundated with the emotion and the circumstance as you are. And from there, our friends can help us with sound advice and proper steps of action. In this regard, you'll notice that Peter and John and the company that they were in decided to stop and pray. Think about that. Their first response was to stop and pray. Not to vent, not to freak out about the situation, but to pray. You could imagine Peter and John uh, telling them what happened in the courtroom with a, a gloomy disposition. 
And perhaps one of their friends spoke up and said, hey, you know what? Can we just pray about this for a minute? Can we just pause and set our minds right and pray about what has happened and what we need? Do you have friends like this that are bold enough to say, can we just stop and pray? Are you a friend like this to be able to stop and pray for a friend in need? And this is neat because in verse 24, we see that they lifted their voices together to God. Another translation is that they prayed in one accord. And so they probably had one person actually pray, but the whole community of believers in this moment, in this room, wherever they are, their friends are actually in unity. As the person prays, they are praying along with that person, probably in their heart and in their minds. There's agreement, there's unity with what's being said. And this shows us that these people were like-minded people. They were in the company of other believers. And so when you are in your moments of crisis and trouble, let me encourage you to choose your closest confidants wisely. In times of crisis, we should embrace specifically our friendships with other believers What Peter and John have is a support group of people that consists of like-minded people that wear the same set of glasses and see the world the same way. They see the world as Jesus sees the world. This is so crucial as you seek insight and wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 speaks to this. It's written that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What this scripture is saying and what it tells us is, do you want wisdom in any given situation? It starts with the fear of the Lord. It starts with that healthy respect of God if you want wisdom. Do you want insight on this life? If you want the best insight possible, you have to start with the knowledge of God. You have to know God if you want insight into the world. If you want to be wise... You're not going to be, you're not going to get very far if you don't know God. So why on earth would you seek wisdom from friends who do not know God? Who see the world differently than you? I'm glad you have those friendships. They're important, but you shouldn't be receiving counsel from them in times of trouble. Peter and John go to fellow believers, their friends who are like-minded, and they enter into prayer together to seek wisdom and insight. And the prayer that we read from verses 24 through 30 is actually the longest prayer recorded in Acts. And it seems as though that Luke includes this, the author of Acts includes this prayer to be an example uh, to us how to pray, especially in times of crisis. Luke could have easily gleaned over this and said, and then they prayed, but he didn't. He records exactly what they prayed. This is a model prayer, as it were, and there's some key features that we can break down and apply in our situations. To start, you'll notice that they don't immediately come to God with their request, but rather they spend a good portion of the prayer talking about God. And they do this, the avenue in which they do this is actually praying scripture back to God. They quote two different Psalms in their prayer. 
First, they refer to God as the creator who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This comes directly from Psalm 146, verse 6, which we read earlier in the service. Second, they quote a few stanzas from Psalm 2 that refer to the rejection of the anointed one. This is a very good habit to get into when we pray. It's a good practice for us to pray God's word back to him because it sets the context of our requests. I fear that too many times when I pray, my, my prayers are self-motivated and self-absorbed and I often immediately come to God with a grocery list of sorts that I can put check marks by. Too many times in the face of crisis, our attention is turned inward to my need and my desires. And there, these can be emotional times and the height of emotion can cloudy our thoughts. And many times we can buy into lies that turn inward. One of those is often when we're in times of crisis is that we sit there and say, I wish that I had all the answers. I wish that I understood everything that was going on. Why can't I understand uh, all of this and have all the answers to my problems? And some people go so far to this that they shy away from God because they want all the answers and he doesn't seem to be providing them. But the reality is, if in my mind it is even possible to have all the answers in my troubles, then my view of God is much too low. My view of God is much too low because to have all the answers is to elevate myself to the same position as God, which is impossible. When our heart runs rampant and turns inward, we must be disciplined in our mind during prayer and turn outward towards God and his vastness. Because otherwise, our view of God is too low. A.W. Tozer would say that it's this way because we want a God that we can control. Sure, I want God to come in and solve all my problems and troubles and crises when I need him. But when I don't need him, then he, he, he can just keep his distance from me. The only way to remedy this is to know him so much more through his, his word. We have to understand that God is incomprehensible and we have received just a morsel of who he is. And so when we pray scripture back to him, we are experiencing him as he has revealed himself in his word. And as we grow in the word and as we grow in faith and maturity, we will begin to see how big he really is. So this, this past week, my daughter and I, we've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia and we just finished with Prince Caspian. And you get to a later part in the book and you find the character Lucy. She's the youngest daughter uh, of the four children in the story. And for the first time in Prince Caspian, they see Aslan the lion, Lucy does. And Aslan the lion represents the God figure, the, the Christ figure. And uh, Lucy hasn't seen Aslan since they were last in Narnia from their, the, from their book. It's been, it's, it's been about a year since the last time she's seen Aslan. And she looks at Aslan for the very first time in a, in a while. And she says, Aslan, you've grown bigger. 
And Aslan looks at her and says, no, I haven't grown bigger. You've grown bigger. And as you've grown bigger, your understanding of me has grown bigger. This is what happens as we come to know God, as he's revealed in scripture, is that he becomes so much bigger. I'm a testimony to this in that um, the last time I read Chronicles of Narnia, I was not as advanced or further along in my spiritual maturity. And as I'm reading these books to my daughter and I'm reading about Aslan and I'm reading about who God is, I'm like crying as I'm reading these things. And and Ella's just looking up at me like I'm some kind of a weirdo (laughs) because I have such a greater understanding of how big God is and how vast he is. When we turn outward and pray scripture back to God, when we affirm who God is based on how he has revealed himself to us in his word, it moves our prayers away from my context and we are given a new, fresh position of understanding and perspective. To pray scripture back to God is the practice that introduces God's glory and grandeur into my situation. It's saying, God, I don't have all the answers, but I know that you do. And so I am coming in dependence on you, trusting that you are who you say you are. And then all of a sudden, this changes how we view our circumstance. It frames a limited boundary around our crisis by introducing it to a boundless God. I want to take specifically a look at how this plays out in this specific prayer. They they begin their prayer once again by saying, Sovereign Lord or, or Master. And then they quote Psalm 146. You created the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We see that God's sovereignty over creation is being proclaimed. It's the implication that the one who creates is more powerful than the creation itself. And so when we observe the vastness of creation and realize that God is the one who would put the vastness of creation in order, it shows us how vast God truly is. It reminds us just who we're dealing with, and it reminds me of my place. I've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating when considering the vastness of God's creation. I want you to think about the vastness of space, the vastness of of, of our galaxy, of our universe. We know that light travels at a speed of 5.87 trillion miles a year. It's what we would call a light year. We also know that our galaxy is about 100,000 light years in diameter, which makes it an astonishing 587,000 trillion miles wide. It's estimated that our galaxy has over 200 billion stars with our sun being one of the more modest ones. Those are pretty staggering facts, but let me remind you that that is just our galaxy, the Milky Way. It is estimated that there are over 100 billion galaxies. In their prayer, they testified that God created all of that, that he is above all of that, but not only that, everything in it Not only did he create the heaven and the earth and sea, but everything in it. And so this draws us attention not only to the vastness of creation, but the minute detail of creation. 
Consider the atom, one of the most basic building blocks of matter. It is estimated that there are more atoms in the average human body than there are stars in the observable universe. And God is the architect of it all. Everything observable that we can see with our very own eyes has God's fingerprint all over it. Last week, my son came home singing a song after church that he learned in his group. He's eating lunch and I overhear him singing this. He doesn't know I'm listening, but he's saying the words, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. When these believers quote scripture, affirming that God is the creator of the heaven and the earth and in the the sea and everything in them, it is their way of saying, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Alistair Begg, a former pastor of mine, wrote a book called Pray Big. And on this book, in an interview, he says that one of the reasons that my prayers are as poor as they are is because my reservoir is not full enough. It's not as grand. It's not what it might be. And the answer to this is not a book on prayer. The answer to this is coming to know God and coming to be aware of the fact that I am known by him and that he is able to do immeasurably more than I could ever ask or even Imagine. There's a a strange tension, is there not, when we approach God, that he is altogether unknowable because of his vastness. But yet he is knowable because he's revealed himself to us in his word. So how do we know him? By looking to his word and praying it to him. These believers in Acts 4 pray big. They assess their situation theologically by referring to God as creator, but then they also assess their situation historically by quoting Psalm 2. The the Psalm that they quote, they, they say, why did their Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. If you read Psalm 2 in its entirety, which they quote, you'll find two main ideas. The first one is that the nations are against God. People are against God. That's idea number one, but idea number two is their efforts are fruitless. The psalm reflects on the fact that God has placed someone on the throne to to reign, to, to reign supreme, the anointed. But there is a recognition that the nations plot against God and plot against his anointed one. And through the psalm, we come to realize that these people that come up against God, their labor is in vain as they fail to overcome the anointed one. And then back to our passage, you see in verses 27 through 28, the believers that are praying this prayer, they really view themselves as a fulfillment to this psalm. They start putting names and places into this psalm. They're they're saying, hey, this psalm is talking about us because the nations that rage against the anointed one, well, Jesus is the anointed one. And Herod and Pilate, 
and the Gentiles, all the nations, and Israel itself has rejected this anointed one. By citing this psalm, they're saying, God, if people rejected you back then, they will reject you again today. But if they failed back then, they're going to fail again today. So you you can see the type of effect that this has for the believers when they pray scripture back to God. It gives them a bigger perspective. And it's so good, especially as they quote Psalm 2, because here they are acknowledging that evil exists. They take into account that they take into account the full force of the enemy because let's face it, the enemy is real. His schemes are real. The enemy is powerful. It's facing the reality that I will suffer and I will be rejected as Jesus was rejected and it will be severe. The beginning of this prayer is a confession of sorts that my trials are real. My crisis is real. My pain is real. But so is my God, who is sovereign over all creation and cannot be stopped. This perspective of God's sovereignty is perhaps the most important thing that we can remember in our times of crisis. One commentator writes that when we are going through a crisis, the enemy seems so powerful and his schemes seem so well planned that we feel weak in comparison. Evil may seem to have won the day, but history will show that God uses temporary loss to further the agenda of the kingdom. Not only does God prevail in the face of opposition, but he uses their very schemes against them. Because he took the defeat and rejection of Jesus when he was hung on the cross and he turned it around. He used it as the avenue that he would save the world. He used the rejection as a way to claim victory for all of those that are in Jesus, who know Jesus. They tell God who he is. And then they make their request. Their prayers affirm who God is. And then in verse 29, they finally make their request. One commentator writes that they spend a great deal gazing at the sovereign God. And when we gaze at our sovereign God, we need only to glance at our problems. Because they were disciplined in their minds and they spoke truth through their prayer. They now view their circumstance in the proper light. They say, and now, Lord, basically in light of all of this, in light of the fact that you are God, in light of the fact that you are creator, in light of the fact that you overcome rejection, we have a request. Their knowledge of God has informed their request, and I believe that it shapes what they specifically ask for, because it's rather striking, not what they pray for, what they request, but what they don't request. They don't pray for relief from persecution. They don't pray for protection. They don't pray even for something bad to happen to the authorities that threatened them. No, instead, they ask God to allow them to continue to speak his word. And not just that they would continue, but that they would do it boldly. God, in light of who you are, 
in light of who you tell us that you are, would you please allow us to continue this mission, to be faithful to what you have called us to do, and that is sharing the message of Jesus. This is a missional prayer. They say in verse 30, God, will you continue to work? You, you will continue to heal and do miracles in Jesus' name. As you do, would you give us the boldness to come along your side and work? Their concern is not with their own health. It's not with their own well-being, but rather for the mission at hand to tell people about Jesus. Very rarely will you come across a portion of Scripture where people pray for their own health and well-being. All of Paul's prayers, most of them, if not all of them, are all missionally related. They are all about advancing the name of Jesus. And so let's let this serve as an application for us at a local level. Here is our role, church, as individual believers that make up the local body of First Alliance Church. In the face of crisis, let's be praying for the mission of FAC. Let's be intentional in our prayers for the church that we would accomplish the mission that Jesus has commissioned us to do. We devote a lot of time and a lot of energy into praying for our needs and our well-being. And so let's commit equal, if not more time and energy, specifically praying for the future of FAC and the mission at hand. The final verse, we see that God responds to the prayer. This is so cool. And I want to encourage you in that God always hears you. He may not respond like he did here. Here, we read that the place was shaken, which is merely God's affirmation that he would fulfill their request. And then they are filled by the Holy Spirit, which enabled them to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. All because they went to him in prayer. So as we continue to journey as a mission-minded church, as we come up against the adversary, let's pray and ask God for boldness to continue marching on and enable us to speak on his behalf. Let's pray. Father God, what a helpful reminder that you are so far above who we are and what we are and even what we think of you, Lord. I pray that we would not make idols of you in our mind and limit you and that we would pray big. Lord, I pray that our our prayers would be framed by your majesty and your glory, Lord. That our perspective would be fresh and that we would get outside of ourselves of who we are and who we think you are, Lord, and just look to your word as, as, as you've revealed yourself to us. We praise you, Father, that while you are incomprehensible and you are indescribable, Lord, uh, you have made a way for us to know you. We know through Christ who you are, and we praise you for that. I lift up our final worship song uh, to you as we sing in worship, that it would uh, be a blessing to your ear. 
And Lord, as we collect our offering, Father, with this uh, sacrificial gifts that we are giving, Lord, be used to tell of your great might and your great power and your great strength, Lord. I ask, Father, that you would bless it and multiply it. And in your holy name I pray, amen.